Today's episode is sponsored by our friends at Miller's Law, a veteran-founded and run law firm. Miller's Law is giving back to the community that gives so much by making an incredible special offer to our listeners. For the next 30 days, Miller's Law is offering veterans and first responders a family will and power of attorney for only $299. Typically, a will in POA can cost over $2,000. That's a $1,700 savings. This offer is a meaningful way to say thank you for your service for all veterans and first responders. To take advantage of this amazing gift, don't wait. Go to millerslaw.com, M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com, or email them at info at millerslaw.com. If you prefer to phone, you can call toll-free 1-888-855-5547. That's 1-888-855-5547. Don't delay. Do it today. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. Live. And now we are live with Kim Barthel. It's so so great when I it's just a one man show trying to do all this production stuff doesn't always work out the way I want it to, but we are rolling. Kim, thank you so so much for mm-hmm. being back on the show with me. Oh, Mark, I'm always very inspired by your mission, your heart, and your being, and I'm I'm very grateful to have this conversation with you today. Well, you sure know how to pump a guy's tires, Kim. So <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for that. Now, um, uh, you told me just off air here that you are busier than ever, and mm. you're busier. So let's just jump right into the mud, right off the bat. Busier than ever yeah. with crisis response. What's going on, Kim? Yeah, I mean, sometimes when you ask me the question, how are you? That's such a loaded question. It okay, is. That people very rarely authentically answer. Because... We are not usually comfortable to say what is truly our experience. And uh, in this era of the pandemic, uh, of being grounded in one spot, sometimes I feel like this studio that you're seeing me in today is an emergency room. That globally there is so much Uh, access to suffering and that humans are experiencing a greater degree of opportunity to experience themselves. And so whatever is there is there and comes up to the surface. So in a given day, sometimes we are in five or six different countries from forest fire to pandemics in emergency rooms in places like Indonesia to uh, individuals who are experiencing homelessness and suicidality to uh, places in the uh, Middle East where there is struggling with ongoing conflict. It's, It's vast and magnified. And so... This ability to be virtual uh, allows you to be in many, many places at the same time. And that's why I think it feels so intense. You're not just in one environment. Have you had people reaching out to you from all over the planet um, Mm -hmm. uh, more more than normal over the last 18 months? Oh, one session that we did, Mark, that I will never forget. It's called holding space for those who hold space for others, kind of like you. It is is tough balance. You know, in that one particular session, we had 400 people from over 80 countries. 
And it was just mind-blowing to me how people around the world were experiencing a collective experience for the first time in my lifetime and sharing the same grief, the same struggle, and the empathy that was uh, experienced in that opportunity was a life changer for me. I think there's a lot of misunderstanding. There's a lot, um, a giant lack of empathy for those that are struggling because of COVID restrictions. Everything from mm-hmm. sim- simply wearing a mask to, um, <laughs> I hate the term social distancing because it's, it's anti-social distancing. Um, yeah. That lockdown and for all the people that are like, get over it. It's no big deal. It's just a mask. It's no big deal. You're just standing further apart. It's no big deal. You're just staying at home. What mm-hmm. is it that they're missing, Kim? You know, this. every person's experience of this pandemic, in my perception, brings them back to their developmental trauma. And one of the things about our brain, the human brain, is it despises the feeling of separation because we are wired for connection. We're a pack animal. Yep. And we look to each other for our safety. And this, mm, whatever uh, is elicited in each and every one of us is part of what got wired in early on, I think, in our childhood as to feeling abandoned, feeling not good enough, not compliant, like they're a bad person, or that they are in fact invisible. And so each individual is responding from their history in this current collective experience. And it can be very divisive in nature. And very literally divisive. Uh, the Toronto yeah. Pearson Airport is just backed off, but in in Vancouver, they still have two reception lines for for incoming flights: vaccinated and unvaccinated lines. Yeah. Now, what what is the effect of separating people like that? Anytime we have the perception that there's an in group and an out group. The primitive part of our brain, not the thinking part of our brain, interprets that as rejection. And if one and our own individual uh, cognitive priority decides what the in group and the out group is, because it'll change from one place to the next, from one context to the next. Public shaming sure is powerful. Shaming is highly, it's, it, it creates high, high levels of stress and moves us from the stress to the trauma zone. So we think of things like racialism, you know, racial profiling or microaggressions or any aspect where we don't feel like we belong can actually land us into a trauma experience from a neurobiological perspective growing up as the guy that was uh usually on the outside sitting by himself i understand Mm. the, the the feeling that that is um and it's powerful, and it's, it is not okay for anybody to be feeling like that. I remember when I was uh, upgrading high school just before I went to college, uh, the first day walking into that classroom, I saw um, a lady that uh, was uh, there early and sitting by herself, isolated in a corner, just kind of hiding and trying to be as small as possible. So, of course, I, <laughs> it's like, well, if you're trying to be invisible, I'm going to make sure you're not. And uh, sat down beside her and started talking to her and, and eventually warmed her up. And then shoulders dropped mm. and started to smile and cracked a couple of jokes and away you go. And I, I did that because I know what it's like to be that person who's shrunk into mm. a ball, small and trying to be invisible in the corner. And now as a matter of public policy, we are doing that same thing intentionally 
that happened to that young lady, mm. but we're doing it as a society. We're putting baby in the corner, so to speak, mm. you know, and uh, pointing our fingers and saying, shame, shame. It's not good. And it, it's amazing what we do from a place of fear mm-hmm. to each other. Uh, to and, and how hard it is to see the middle ground. I, I watched this incredible, um, I'm good, I don't remember the author's name in this moment, but it was called The Art of Winning a Political Argument. Mm. And it was a YouTube video by a scholar. And the true essence was the ability to desire connection over the need to be right or wrong. That, at, that the way to create connection is to lean in to something that feels uncomfortable and to have an intention to deeply desire to understand the other's perspective and observe yourself in that place of curiosity rather than the desire to be right. Ego is the barrier there. Mm. When connection becomes your priority, you can find that middle ground. And what triggers us into wanting to be right is fear of being wrong, often. And so then we sacrifice the relationship for the opportunity uh, to feel validated and secure. Let's talk and, about, and it, oh, I'm it sorry. takes courage to do that, doesn't it? Oh, it does. And mm. emotional maturity, I would say. Mm. Significant emotional maturity. And, and let's, let's go there for a second. What is the driver that when people really need to be right, you see it uh, most prevalently in, in people that are leaning towards narcissism disorder. Mm-hmm. And, and the closer they are to being a narcissist, the, the more it seems that they need to be right. Why would you say that is? Oh. Well, in the world according to Kim, as your brain is evolving, when you are an infant, what helps that nervous system to become its best self is to have a caregiver or caregivers who put their mind in the mind of the child and allow the child to develop a sense of self. Because an infant develops a sense of their own emotional experience in the body in which they live through the eyes of their people that they rely on to take care of them. And validation and boundaries, validating the child's experience, oh, You're hungry. Let me feed you. Now you feel okay. These are learned experiences. That's an example. Where the brain says, I have a need. The need is valid. Somebody honored that need. And now I'm safe and okay. And when caregivers who are doing the best they can with what they have are preoccupied, preoccupied with their own suffering, preoccupied with their own mental health, their own trauma. And they can't put their mind in the mind of the child. Then there is a lot, there, there's a, there's a out of sync sense in the child's brain of I'm valued. I'm valid. My needs are met. And that can either be, internalized as self-abuse, self-deprecation, or and or externalized, where I bring out a, you can see it in my body, a sense of self-importance, of arrogance, of conversation that is focused on the self, to give myself something that I didn't get in my history. 
I think that's what people really do not understand about arrogant people. About uh, no. is that they're not, they don't think they're better than you. It's the opposite. Exactly. It's the opposite every time. You think you're so much better than me? No, no. <laughs> that's the opposite. Um, when if somebody actually feels that, well, nobody feels that is healthy. Feels that they are superior to others. Would you? No. Would you agree? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think the brain is wired for negativity. Dr. Rick Hansen, who uh, wrote the book Resilience. The rolling across he, the country guy? Uh, not that guy. Oh, a different Rick Hansen. Okay. A different Rick Hansen. Not the man not in motion. The man in, the man in motion is pretty awesome, too. He is pretty awesome. i got to get him on this show. But the uh, psychologist Rick Hansen he talks about how the brain is like Velcro for the bad and that it takes consciousness to reframe, reorganize, takes cortex to shift to positivity and gratitude and seeing things in a holistic perspective because we are designed for survival. And survival will take us to where's the threat, where's the danger. That's our brain's resting state. And and so there are very few humans that I know that actually genuinely feel secure in most conditions. But they have this, in a mature way, capacity to recognize it when they don't. For uh, many of in the veteran community and first responder community as well, but definitely in the outside the wire uh, type of veteran community, there is something about an emergency situation that makes us smile and giggle. You know, where everybody else is uh, (laughs) crapping their pounce, we're grinning ear to ear. Um, Seven years ago, uh, my wife and I, we got married under the Eiffel Tower in Paris and it was really cool. Wow. And um, there was a anti-Israel pro-Hamas uh, parade, and it was like you could feel the energy, you know, like it could have gone bad at any second. And there's thousands and tens of thousands of people on the uh, with their loudspeakers, and all the French police were absolutely crapping their pants, and I was laughing. You know, my, my, my wife is just horrified by this. I'm like, oh, that's okay, honey. You just stand up by the building, keep your back up against the wall. I'm going to go take some pictures and meet some people in the parade. And uh, <laughs> and uh, the the police took notice of me because instead of being horrified, I'm the one that isn't. And they were actually taking cues off of me because uh, they, they realized mm-hmm. that, I'm, that I was very, not just comfortable, but thriving in this environment and enjoying mm-hmm. it. Because, and I don't know why that is. It's just mm. like, hey, finally, um, uh, me being switched on with hypervigilance uh, actually makes mm. sense. So I get to be me mm. right now. It makes total sense to me, Mark. And of course, you would get married in a context like that, right? That, that it, it, your energy uh, of comfort in that situation, it's so fascinating how we find ourselves in situations. When I talk about being in an emergency room, I get it. Because we wouldn't be in an emergency room if we weren't enjoying some aspect of being in an emergency room. And so there's a, we can be addicted to our states of discomfort. So with negativity or with survival comes adrenaline. And adrenaline makes you think sharp, can make you very creative, it can make you very tuned in, and it feels like life is alive in those, like I'm doing something useful. And I see you smiling when I say that. And then when, you know, we're in this supposed relaxed state, it's kind of flat and not so interesting. And sometimes stressful in and of itself. So your nervous system, there's a lot of people that I know who are first responders. I'm going to put myself in that category who find the time off or the, the flat line as di- very difficult. 
because your brain doesn't know what to do in that context. The more high flying the um, the profession, the more adrenaline, uh, the, the mm-hmm. more difficult it is to adjust to civilian life. It is mm-hmm. it is so day and night. Even going from one battalion to another, um, I started my career in. Well, it wasn't a career. I was only there for five years. But um, I, I started my service in the 3rd Battalion, which was in Victoria, and they were the most aggressive, most physically fit unit in the country. Like, they were more fit, more fit than the Airborne. And you don't want to be more fit than the Airborne. You know, it's not a, it's, it's not a good thing. It's a crazy thing. And um, when, we, when that battalion shut down after a couple of years of being in that climate, and we went to the 1st Battalion, which, are, uh, which was much better fit for me, but... Um, that was almost like like it was such a difference because the intensity level went from a 10 down to a 6. And uh, and everybody felt like a fish out of water. And that's like from within the same regiment, just two different battalions. So you amplify that from being a, a special forces operator. I never was. Uh, I, I was um, regular army. But... Um, mm-hmm from being regular army with uh, a, a, a few tours or uh, a special operator or God help you if you were JTF two, which is a tier one operator. And those guys are high speed, low drag to, to go to civilian life from that. I mean, the gap is absolutely insane. Like you're going from the tip of Mount Everest to uh, uh, chilling on the beach. There's, it is a yeah. huge, huge gap. And a lot of people end up skydiving and, or high-speed yes. spe- high sports or whatever to try yes. to fill that gap, yes. which I also mm-hmm. did for many, many years. And, and it's kind of like we look for something in life that imitates that same neurochemical feeling that we identify as being in a just-right state. Does the DSM call it uh, a legit addiction? Because there's lots of things that I think are addictions mm-hmm. that aren't in the DSM. Uh, and thank you for for saying that, how I think about it as a person uh, who studies the brain is we all have an addiction. Sure. Right. That we all uh, find a certain uh, neurochemical experience in our life as our identified preferred state. In psychology, according to Kim, how would you uh, define a, uh, an addiction from your perspective? Aside from the DSM. So for an addiction in uh, from a clinical perspective is anything that interferes with your function. So my husband, who is not listening right now, he would tell you that one of my addictions is shoes. <laughs> okay, Emil DeMarcos. Mila yeah, Mulroney. Just, you know, things that you like. Sure. And from my perspective, it doesn't interfere with function. But... You know, is my, from his perspective, it might because it takes up more space in the closet. So again, it, it's a very individualized. Uh, it doesn't stop me from going to work. It doesn't stop me from engaging in relationships. It doesn't cause me from losing things in my life. So addiction uh, on the continuum of what it is, it becomes problematic when it interferes with your function. Otherwise, it's still within the realm of the continuum of being regulated. I had on the show a little while ago, uh, Courtney Boyer, if I remember right, and uh, she's a sex expert. And uh, so I wanted to talk about sex addiction. And she goes, well, Mark, that's not a thing. Uh, From a clinical perspective, it's not in the DSM. And because there's not a chemical dependency that results in withdrawal, uh, it's not an addiction. I'm like, hmm. Okay, no. well, just because it's not in the DSM doesn't mean, you know, that's not the Bible. Correct. And um, even the Bible isn't the Bible. So, uh, sorry, that's my belief. <laughs> but uh, No, I mean, Dr. Gabor Mate, yes. who is my colleague, esteemed colleague, you know, he talks about his addiction to classical music. That definitely wouldn't call, fall into the DSM-5, but it interfered with his function. As he described it, he would buy the same, spend lots and lots of money just to have it, you know, and that that's when it bleeds into uh, interfering with with your capacity to participate in your day. 
I like your uh, definition better than mine. It's simpler, and it's and it's 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 just a it's a one checkbox uh, <laughs> diagnosis, and mm. I, I, I like that for myself. Um, I broke it into three: that if it's compulsive and uncontrollable, yes. if it's um, uh, uh, high risk or dangerous, mm. and if it causes harm to your to your, to your life. Uh, so if it hit, if those are the three check boxes for me, but really, uh, I like yours better. If it interfect, mm-hmm. if, if it interfe- uh, interferes with um, with your life in a negative way, it's it's an addiction or a yeah. problem anyway. Lovely. Let's circle back to um, what we were chatting about off air a little bit. From your perspective. Um, and we, we talked about this a little bit. I believe that the core of growth, the core mm-hmm. of healing, and of course, uh, healing is growth, you know, uh, mm-hmm. is, is to be your true, authentic self. And mm-hmm. if you're acting out of alignment with your true, authentic self, that's where the pain is. That's where the disconnection is. And disconnection is pain. Or um, that, that is what the pain is. The pain is the disconnection from self, from community, from family. Um, but primarily from self is where it has to start, in my belief. And how does a person, like, first, how would you define the authentic self, who you truly are, as opposed to who you think you are? And how do you get there, Kim? Oh, I'm so excited to have this conversation. <laughs> uh, I, today, uh, I am writing a blog. I do that once a month. And it's called The Thousand Faces of Dissociation, which is all about being disconnected from your authentic self. So it it's exciting to, you're, you're going to help me in my task today by giving me the opportunity to share some of the things that I'm thinking about. I have a bit of a unique perspective, I think, in that the self begins in the body. And having worked with uh, children with neurodiversity for so many years uh, with diagnoses like autism or ADHD or whatever developmental disability we can talk about, so many of the children that I've supported in my career have difficulties with processing sensations from their body. So they don't know where they are in space. They don't know, is this me? Is this not me? They don't know, is that touch safe or threatening? They don't often know, is what I'm seeing a whole image or fragments of an image? And so sensory information that comes from the environment, from the body, is the primal formation of self. There's a lot of work uh, being done right now on a sensory system we call the vestibular system, which is located in your inner ear that tells you, am I moving or is the world moving? Am I upside down? Am I right side up? What angle is my head? Where's my horizon? How do I use my muscles so I don't fall on my face when I'm standing on the bus and the bus is about to stop? This vestibular system is easily hijacked by either a neurodevelopmental challenge that's developing in utero, or by developmental trauma. And when we experience developmental trauma or trauma in our life, one of the strategies that protects us is to dissociate, which means that I separate from myself. Now, often when I talk about dissociation, what comes to mind for folks, is the Hollywood version of dissociation, where you see a vet, for example, um, at a fireworks, who is just 
been triggered or activated or disconnected from the reality of the situation. But moments of dissociation happen all the time. They often happen in response to people's nonverbal communication. If I looked at you, Mark, like this, with my face, I call that the constipated face, my judgmental face. I would start crying immediately. (laughs) (laughs) For some, that might activate in their history developmental trauma of disapproval, rejection, abandonment, or subsequent abuse. And the bandwidth between perceiving that cue and a dissociated response might be seconds. So every time I disconnect from myself, I've disconnected from the sensations in my body. And this is the part in therapy that often is missed because finding out who I am is not just a cognitive experience of thinking and analyzing. It's an embodied experience. Right now, as we're talking about this, it's so important to me that I want to do a good job in explaining it. But my embodied experience of that is my heart is racing. Well, why is that happening? Because in my developmental history, it was very important to do a good job, to be precise, to be well represented, to be non judgmental. There are layers and layers of other voices in my mind while I'm just talking right now that have, are full of should messages that are not my authentic self. That's one of the challenges of being fully present in any conversation. It's my challenge as, um, I don't really consider myself an interviewer, like we're more having a guided discussion, but it's so hard uh, to, uh, because everything you're saying, and I'm relating it to myself, relating it to myself, being self-centered about it, uh, and and I'm trying to turn that shit off so I can be 100% listening to you, but that's every conversation. And if if you don't learn to turn that off, you are... um, uh, even if you're not outwardly making it about you, you're making it about you internally. And that can be sensed by the person who you're try- supposed to be holding mm-hmm. space for. And if you, if, if the person that's, that's talking to you doesn't feel like you're truly listening and that they are truly being heard, um, then there is a gap in trust. There is a gap in relationship there because uh, trust and relationship is all about connection. And if you're yes. not fully plugged in, you are not connected. Well, you know, that. so there's an example of a should in your mind, just for example, sure. that you should be fully present in an, in an interview. And re- in reality, me and you together equal we. And it's not all about what is going on in each individual, but the collective. And the, the fact that we just shared that dialogue about our own inner should mm-hmm. spaces was the connecting point. Because it was happening, but the fact that we could say, hey, uh, I'm anxious in this moment, for example, because this is what I'm expecting of myself. And then you responded back, well, I'm having an experience where I'm not feeling like I'm doing my best job. Now we're, now we are a we. And both those examples are a wonderful example of mindfulness. That's what mindfulness flipping is. You know, uh, when people go mindfulness, woo woo. It's like, no, no, you don't get it. If you, if you don't learn what mindfulness truly is, then you don't know what's going on with you. If you don't know what's going on with you, you don't know yourself. You don't Mm -hmm. know how you're coming across and you don't know how you're um, processing internally because uh, I'm going to throw something at you um, uh, that occurred to me earlier today and, and uh, see, see how you feel about it. I've often talked about the trauma cup when trying to explain to people um, when somebody has 
behavior that is not great, you know, whatever not great mm-hmm. is to somebody, uh, disruptive behavior, damaging de- de- behavior, uh, harmful or even risky behavior. Um, that is the trauma cup overflowing. We all have a cup. And in trauma mm-hmm. recovery, um, we are trying to get, like, if you have PTSD, your cup overfloweth. And when you're having a good day, it's right at seven-eighths full. And it, and, it, and it takes very, very little uh, to just touch that cup. And you're like, why are you so touchy? Why are you so sensitive? You know, why, why being so dramatic? No, no, that's not what that is. That is that your cup is already full. It's more full than your cup. And what you perceive as dramatic is just uh, their cup's already full. They have already been through more shit than, um, than they can handle or anybody. Can, because mm-hmm. we all have a limit. And you don't mm-hmm. know their story. So try to be empathetic, you douche. <laughs> and, and when that drama cup overfloweth, um, our job in trauma recovery is, is, and I just realized this morning, it's two things. One is to drain that cup as much as you can. And if you've already suffered from PTSD, I don't know if you could ever get it down to a third, which is where I think normal people are or truly healthy people are. But if you can get it down to a half, that would be great. But the, mm-hmm. the little epitome this morning was that there's another way. Through conversations like what we're having, through increased awareness and mindfulness and other mm-hmm. tools, you can have a bigger cup. Mm-hmm. And that also lowers the level and makes it more stable. So you you can you can drain drain the cup you have, but you but these tools give you a bigger cup. I'm excited because we talk about this here at Relationship Matters every day. Uh, we call it a coffee cup, and uh, in using Dr. Daniel Siegel's um, model of the window of tolerance, it's like a coffee cup. And I'm finding, you asked me about being in the emergency room of Relationship Matters right now. It's people I find are living, their espresso, their espresso is all the way up to the top of the coffee, coffee cup. And they're living at that, people often say, oh, my kid went from zero to 60. And I will say, no, they were living at 59. And you missed it. And you're right, we can adapt the environment, the task, the relationship to decrease the loads in that coffee cup. Or I can give you a grande mug. That's exactly what we say. By expanding your resilience, you get a bigger mug. And in fact, in my study of resilience, Mark Individuals who experience adversity, individuals who see the bigger picture, who are experiencing conflict and war. We think about that as all trauma, but it's also a broader window of tolerance. Because you've seen so many aspects of humanity that the rest of us might not have. And can't accept even is real, you know, sure. uh, at least not, not on, in a meaningful way. I call it the untainted eyes. I wrote a song mm. about it that's so dark and nasty. But um, with your untainted eyes, the world's woes are disguised. It's because you haven't mm. seen what's causing the screams, that you can sleep tonight knowing that your family is all right. And, uh, and that is uh, most that have come back from a war zone have that moment of, wow, everybody's clueless. They have no idea. I remember my moment. It was in Horseshoe Bay Ferry Terminal. And looking Mm -hmm. around, and what it was was all the glass because they had uh, the the ferry terminals and all this intact, Mm -hmm. clean glass. None of it was shot out. And that's when it it hit me because I was used to buildings where most of it was shot out and there's bullet holes all over the sides of the buildings and... Um, and, and people had a different energy, a different look. Uh, a, fif- uh, a 14-year-old uh, child uh, looked like an 80-year-old man uh, as far as their demeanor and how they would carry themselves and that solemnness. Um, and then I see all these people bopping around, not a care in the world, no idea how lucky and blessed they are. None. Zero. And uh, so many have had that, holy shit, people don't understand moment. 
you know, we call that dissonance, cognitive dissonance, where what I know and what I see is not make sense. And the brain doesn't know what the heck to do with that. It takes a lot of time to reconcile that kind of split. I know uh, alternately, alternately, I have been myself in war zones, not as in combat, but as in a service provider. And I've seen the opposite, where you're surrounded by gunfire and there's bombs falling and people are kind Mm -hmm. to each other. And there's, I I think I, I don't remember if I told you this story last time, but I was sitting in a bomb shelter in the Middle East with a mom and her three kids. And it was, I'm, I'm this girl from Winnipeg outside of the realm of my experience. And this mom was reading bedtime stories to her kids. And just the oxymoron dissonance of hearing, you know, shots in the distance, wondering what's going to happen, and reading a bedtime story at the same time. It was such a profound split that my brain didn't know what to do with that. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I've lived in bunkers, uh, like exactly what you were in, and I'm, I'm trying to as soon as you said that, I, I just had to, to take a breath because a bunch of soldiers mm-hmm. in a uh, bunker, sandbag bunker, is a lot different than a family. Yes. You know, children. I mean, the um, just how wrong and unfortunate that is, is, is very, very striking to me. Um, mm. I might, mm. I, um, in, I've started negotiations for potential sponsorship with an armored car company. And uh, in talking with them, I said, I've been the guy in the armored car, armored personnel carrier, while it's getting shot at. And you're hearing tink, 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 you know, uh, and and you have this barrier between you and the bullets. It's uh, it's a hell of a feeling. And Mm. for children to know Mm. that feeling, you know, whether there's bullets and shrapnel hitting the sandbags or not, you're still there for that reason, to protect yourself from bullets and shrapnel and shockwaves. Yes. And um, pe- people in our geocentric bubble, there's the, the pros and cons. Um, I once said to my father, and it was a moment of rare wisdom from him, that uh, I said, Dad, people just don't understand how lucky they have it. And then he says, nor should they. That's what you're for. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's actually a really good point, Dad. And that's the sacrifice that, mm. that, that people don't know. Like the people that are uh, um, very non-veteran friendly, they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't know that we did it so you don't have to. So you don't have to know what that's like. How would you describe being in that bunker? I think I had to put myself there. And for starters, I don't want to. No. Right? I think that's what we're talking about here in this authentic selfness example that you and I are demonstrating right now. When you just, you know said what you said, and I took it into my heart, and I just wanted to pause and hold space for that. I wanted everyone to feel that, you know, the emotion in that. And I think when you ask the question, how does it feel, the, there's an instantaneous, look at what I just did. I had to soften myself into it. I couldn't just do it right away because the split and the coffee cup got too full in the question. So if I wanted, I needed to regulate myself first in order to put myself back in that situation in order to tolerate it. And I remember 
having a whole bunch of thoughts, Mark. Like, come on, be brave. That was, I, I, can, I can hear it now. Come on, this mom is in here with you. And her kids are three and five and eight. And, and you're this trauma therapist. Come on. Get your act together. And so that is a common thread for me in so many situations is you can do better than this. So I think there is a danger in that thought in that it doesn't actually allow you to feel afraid. Well, that's a coping mechanism for the moment that yep. is required. Yep. That's the conditioning part, I think, Kim. And uh, I'm sorry if I'm jumping in early. It just, no. When you go into a war zone, there's the first two weeks, and you're crap in your pants. But you get acclimatized really quick. Yes. And that, you get, but that acclimatization is the disassociation. Yes, and Mark. And once that disassociation, which takes a couple of weeks, I noticed, uh, depending on your environment and, and what you're doing, I was, everything we did was outside the wire. Everything. Uh, very little time inside the camp. Uh, it was all operational outside doing shit. At, uh, and a lot of it we really didn't want to do. But um, it took a couple of, it takes a couple of weeks. <laughs> but we had, uh, just at the end of the tour, we had um, one of our sergeants uh, wigged out and was sent, sent home. Quite a few people actually wigged out and were sent home. And um, when the new sergeant came in, he's all jet-lagged and messed up. First tour, never been in, in, uh, uh, in a war zone before. So th- threw him into the trailer. And um, one of the most interesting memories that I have is uh, I was picking up uh, my coffee cup and halfway to my mouth, a landmine went off, Uh, Mm. like really close, like 60 yards away, just on the other side of uh, where the sergeant was sleeping. Now, my hand didn't pause, you know, it it didn't shake, didn't twitch. And uh, I just, I, I did take a moment to go. No, it was just a landmine. Because if it's a mortar, that's bad. We got to react. But we know the difference, right? And it's like, no, that's just a landmine. No biggie. And um, you quickly you do the math in a nanosecond. Uh, it, it's just a landmine, and it was just a random one. It's not one of our guys that hit one. Because you, you zero it. Okay, where, where was it? There was not a threat. So it's a quick threat analysis. Not a threat. And I didn't even twitch on my coffee cup. It didn't even make a ripple. And as I'm taking a sip, the sergeant comes flying out of his trailer because it's the mm. first landmine he's ever heard. And it's like the thousandth the rest of us have. And uh, he comes screaming out of this. And his helmet's on sideways. He's in his underwear, his, his unlaced boots, and, and, and his uh, rifle going, which bunker do I jump into? Which bunker do I jump into? And everybody just kind of looked with a smile and uh, like, Who, who's got this one? I put up my hand. I got it. <laughs> and went up Think to him, about you know. the shame in there for oh, him oh we were that's why we were all kind you know and and we mm. made sure that there was no because we we know what that's like it's the first it's the first month you know and so uh it's like who's got it i got it so i went up to him put my hand on his shoulder it's, it's okay sarge um it's just a landmine happens all the time this is totally normal there is no threat uh, you don't, and if there was a, a mortar, you don't have to wonder which one to go to. Just go to whichever. Flip a coin. It doesn't matter. And he's like, so what do I do now? You go back to bed. You've got to be kidding me. No, I'm not yeah. kidding you. Trust me. Uh, go back to bed. Because <laughs> you're going to need every, every inch of sleep that you can get. And, um, uh, but that is the, because the disassociation, disassociation hasn't kicked in yet. And for some people, it, it, it never does, and they have to get shipped out. They can't stay there because they can't yeah. function. So when you talk about the authentic self, as you were speaking just now, uh, and I was in connection with you, I was feeling it in myself. And that, so you, you said earlier about being present, I can be present to you, deeply be listening to you, and still feel it in myself. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting to me is I felt it all in here, in my shoulders, in my neck. This whole idea of, for me, what resonated in my body was this idea of holding it together. 
in situations that are just not okay, right? And how we can, as humans, hold it together, but we don't actually know how. Oh, hang on, Kim, you just froze. If you can hear me. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. We have online Kim Barthel, and we just froze. And we're back, Kim. So holding it together was where we were at. Oh, am I frozen now? Now you're back. Okay, now I'm back. You froze on me, then I froze on you. So yes. where, where we left off was uh, holding it together. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we, we learn how to hold it together and we don't learn how to hold, how to be okay. Mm. And that, that's where, you know, even as we're talking about the situation now, we can analyze it, we can talk about it, but until I actually find it in myself. So, you know, when I talk about the vestibular system, one of the things that I have uh, done with, some of the vets that I've supported who've come into my therapy space is they walk in and they're so stiff and their eyes, their eyebrows are up around their forehead and their breath is way up here. And all I give them to sit in is a beanbag chair (laughs) and they come in to the clinical space and they're like, where's the chair? And I'm like, that's the chair. We're going to sit on the floor in this position that curls you up so that you feel your own self. And and I had one guy say to me, I'm not sitting in that thing. And I said, I know, it's so hard to not hold yourself up. So we'll sit there when you're ready. So your question about the authentic self, it begins in the body. And it expands, it has to be felt as emotion. So one last thing to say about that question. Uh, Jill Bolte-Taylor in her book, My Stroke of Insight, she says, if we don't land in our emotions for 90 seconds, at least, they can live in our body for 90 years. So if we split off away from our body and our feelings into our head, then we hurt ourselves, and we lose who we are. And that affects our relationships. Once you understand who you are truly, your authentic self, is it easier to practice self-love? I have no idea. (laughs) Because I don't know if I know who my authentic self is yet either. I think that is an idea. But I, the road to what you call self-love is self-compassion, mm-hmm. which is a reorganizing of how I speak to myself in my own mind, where I can say, wow, you know, you really worked hard at that. Or that interview today with Mark was really important to you, and, you, you know, you need to celebrate that. Or, wow, I'm really tired today, and maybe I'm not going to be able to give 100%. Those are reorganizing, softening thoughts that have a dramatic impact on our chemistry. Treating yourself the way you would treat your own best friend. Yeah. So I I prefer self-compassion to self-love because I don't know if I'll ever love myself but I definitely am working on compassion with myself what's the greatest barrier to having compassion for yourself Mm. I think it's the, 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 the protection is so ingrained that there is this Fear of if I don't have my protection of those old voices, those old wiring, that I am nothing. 
I think we want to keep things the same because the unknown is scary as all get up. So if I'm actually kind to myself, well, maybe I, I won't work as hard. I won't have as enough, you know, I won't make as much money or uh, people won't think I'm as good or, I mean, there's all kinds of reasons why we don't just let go of things that don't serve us. There is, um, on all the things I follow on Instagram, there's a fella, Nate Postlewaite, I think is his name, and he has a lot of really interesting, profound things that I, that I enjoy, but there is one uh, position that I, I'm feeling fairly strong uh, that, uh, that I disagree, and it's, it's about forgiveness. Hmm. Now, is forgiveness important? What for? What do you, when are you supposed to forgive, and what is the barrier to it? I think it depends on how you define forgiveness. Mm. Uh, Often people perceive forgiveness as allowing the other person off the hook for what they've done to me. Absolutely. That is not my definition of forgiveness. Forgiveness is being in alignment with what is and moving to have more, bringing in more. You know, that, that's, that, that idea of alignment, so many individuals in therapy say to me, I'm going to be better, Kim, when I don't remember anymore. <laughs> but the body and, remembers. Body keeps the score. Yeah, well, you're going to be dead when you don't remember. Yeah. And, and maybe you'll remember more when you're dead. I don't know. Could be. But this idea of forgiveness like an eraser. It's, this is a part, it's making room for the experience within us and finding a reconciliation, maybe, I don't want to overuse that word, of that experience within my psyche, that it isn't going to go away, but that it's going to find at least a home inside of me that is not as destructive. That's what forgiveness is to me. I, I think that forgiveness and compassion might be interchangeable terms, hmm. p- potentially, because I, I completely agree with you. The biggest barrier to forgiveness is the idea that you're somehow condoning or endorsing yes. or letting somebody off the hook, and that is simply not the case. Not. For, for, you know, on a bumper sticker, it'll say forgiveness is the gift you give yourself. But, and, 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 you know, and it's true, just when somebody, something sounds so cliche, it's often dismissed, yeah. which is unfortunate, because uh, forgiveness is the gift you give yourself is the truth. But it's, it's, it's compassion for yourself and for others. Yes. By, by simply understanding if they knew better, they'd do better. If they mm. had more, they'd give more. If I had more, I would have given more. If I knew better, I would have done better. And now I do know better, so I do better. Right. And it's, that, that's the compassion. Uh, and it's the opposite of being judgmental. Absolutely. Not forgiving you know, means you're being judgmental. Compassion is not boundaryless. No. It doesn't mean I just let you keep doing what you're doing. Oh, no. Not right? at all. A self-compassion is drawing a boundary and saying exactly. no. And if no means you're no longer in my life, that's okay. Yeah. It's 100% okay. Like, uh, and it often is compassionate to the other as well. Absolutely. Because you are creating uh, a containment for their, their own self-destruction. You wouldn't, want, you wouldn't let a two-year-old walk over to your coffee table and pull over on themselves the most dangerous glass ornament without saying, stop. You wouldn't do it. You'd either remove that ornament or you would keep them safe. And adults are children in big bodies. They still need that same kind of what's okay and what's not okay. Have you watched Gabor Mate's The Wisdom of Trauma? 
Oh yes, I would. I would have imagined if I figured that one was a slam dunk. But, um, yes. How powerful is that? Is there anything yeah. in the wisdom of trauma that um, mm. you're not sure of, or that you disagree with? Oh my gosh, that's a. Uh, Big question. Okay, I'm going to think for a second here. (laughs) Okay, so I got anxious on that question again. And I'll tell you why. Because I have a tremendous, a tremendous reverence and respect for Gabor Mate. And I love the wisdom of bringing the information to the world. What sometimes has dissonance for me is the style. So I don't always have, like most of us have our own style. And when I think about uh, the ability to come in and say to a client, this is your issue, or I see your childhood here in this moment, I'm a lot more watch, wait, and wonder than that. And so, you know, I, there's nothing that I disagree with, but what I want to say to each therapist is we each need to bring our own self to the process. Not everybody likes chocolate. Some, no. some people like marble. Some people like That's vanilla. Right. Some people That's like right. creamsicle. I like creamsicle. And, not, and that's any relationship. You know, when, when you follow somebody, somebody's work, that's a form of relationship. Uh, fans of, of my show, that's a form of relationship. Absolutely. And I'm not for everybody, and nobody is for everybody, and that's okay. Right. Although I'm surprisingly low on haters. I'm like, man, I've got to be more controversial or something. I don't seem to have any haters yet. I'll know, I know I've made it when, uh, when I start to get the internet trolls uh, crapping on me. I'm like, whoo, I made it. But, uh, but I think... You know, as far as uh, the wisdom of trauma as a gift to the world, oh, my heart is full of gratitude. I agree. And really, I, I think the long and the short of the lesson of uh, Gabor is um, compassion. Exactly. And, that, and that's it. I did a rant yesterday on, on Instagram about uh, uh, people being critical and judgmental and dismissive of the homeless. And uh, because of the, there was a somewhere in Ontario, a homeless encampment was getting bulldozed and, um, and people just crapping on those that are in such pain because they don't yes. understand why they're homeless. So instead of understanding it and having some compassion, it was just a matter of judgmentalness and mm. really cruelty. You mm. know, it's like uh, cruelty isn't a good character trait. You know, that's, that's not something to put on your resume. No. No, but it, it comes back to each and every, when, whenever you watch anything, it invites you into connecting to your own authentic self, right? So plugging back into what, what resonates for me here? What, what is telling me or working for me in what I'm, and this could be even watching any television show, and what doesn't work for me? And that becomes a greater, everything can be feedback. Every experience can be feedback that takes you more and more into understanding you. That's an epiphany I've had uh, about three weeks ago. And at least at a deeper level, it's occurred to me in the past that every, that everything's a, a lesson. But mm-hmm. for somebody who is really struggling st- struggling with the symptoms of PTSD, when those, when you are, I hate the word triggered, but let's say activated. Yeah. I like activated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. me too. When, when you are activated um, uh, and, and that anxiety is just going and that cup overfloweth, mm-hmm. taking a pause and remembering two things. One, the storm always passes. Yes. Every storm runs out of gas. And the more intense it is, like a tornado, the quicker it runs out of gas. It will pass. Even a long 10-year drought will pass. And the second is that, and it's really, it's, it's a matter of faith. Having the, having the faith and the belief that this is for my greater good. As much as this sucks hard, so bad, 
it's for my greater good. This is a lesson. This is a test. This is an opportunity, mm. no matter how bad it is. And uh, the since April, I have been tested significantly. Mm. Like, like back off already, <laughs> you know. And yeah. uh, it's been significant. But that's what's got me through it: is the faith that this is. Mm an important lesson. And when this storm passes and when I get a grip on this and, and I don't feel like I'm going to speed wobble anymore, this makes me wiser, mm. stronger, and more able to help others because my compassion uh, cup, which is, has its own cup will, um, uh, will be more full. And that's a good one to have. It's also bad exactly. to let it overflow. You now have a grande coffee have, cup. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> Hmm. What's next for you, Kim? Wow. That question is um, appropriate in this moment because it's a watch, wait, and wonder to what is going to happen next in the world. Yes. You know what? How before this pandemic, uh, we traveled 11 out of 12 months a year in service. And never was in our home. Now we haven't left our home for 17 months. And it's, I'm watch, waiting, and wondering to see what's going to evolve. The ability to respond from here is wonderful, but it isn't wonderful in all aspects. So it's this desire to continue to be of service in the way that is most needed. So I'm not sure what is next. I'm waiting to see what unfolds. Well, I think we are kindred spirits in that, (laughs) (laughs) trying to do what matters most to the best of our ability. Yes. Kim, thank you so much for being with me today and for making the time, holding the space, and for sharing what you've shared. This has been... um, a very, very memorable conversation that I hope uh, everybody that's going to listen to this, I think, has been blessed. I think mm. it's, it's a privilege to, uh, for those that find this conversation, they were meant to find and hear this conversation. So thank you so much for, for the gift that is you. Mm. Thank you, Mark. And thanks for all the wonderful work that you do in the world to support others. Doing my best, sister. That's all, that's all we can do. Yeah. Kim, please stay on the line. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Tremor Recovery Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring. Thank you.